to junior church, if our uh, leaders would come over to this door and they will help lead them downstairs. You have your Bibles. I encourage you to go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, this is our last Sunday in our series titled The Church. Uh, next week, we're going to begin an eight week series in the book of Galatians, and it's going to be titled No Other Gospel. I encourage you, uh, begin reading through the book of Galatians. It's a short book, about six chapters. Begin reading through that this week in preparation uh, for that series. If you, are, if you are new to the faith or if you are, are here and you're just kind of checking Christianity out, this will be just an incredible series, I think, in, in helping give understanding of the gospel. And if you uh, would say, no, I'm more of a, a seasoned Christian, I've been here, I understand what the gospel is, then I think this will be a series that will help truly deepen those roots uh, further down into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so look forward to that. Uh, no other gospel. Galatians starts next week. But today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and the title is The Commissioning of an Elder. And that's what our text is about. And that's what we're going to do today. Many of you know, a few years ago, we began a process called an elder candidate process. And, and the goal was that we would become more intentional as a church in, in raising up men who would be elders and leaders here within the church. One of those men that has gone through that process is Aaron Powell. And so it's pretty exciting just to see how he's gone through that. And today we're going to commission him. And I said a few things last week. We're going to do it a little different. We're going to commission him this week. And then at the annual meeting, we'll do our official installation of that. And I think that'll probably go a little better. And uh, we'll be able to communicate a few more things about eldership there at that time. So today is the commissioning. And at our annual meeting, we'll do the official installation. And so with that, I, I want to talk a little bit about Aaron for a moment. And so Aaron, uh, you, you want to come up here too and we'll just do it? <laughs> no. Aaron. Aaron has a deep love for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's just been apparent ever since I've gotten to know him. Uh, he loves the church, and he loves to come alongside just others in the church to share the truth of the gospel, to come alongside and encourage and help them to know Jesus. He is a husband and a father of three. He strives to shepherd his family in, um, in the gospel in a Christ-like manner. He's been a huge blessing to me. Uh, regularly, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll ask me questions just about how I am doing, and he'll say, how are you? And I'll say, you know, fine or whatever. And then he goes, no, really, how are you? And he truly uh, seeks to shepherd all of those who are around him and spur me and others on in the faith. And so uh, he's a wonderful example uh, of a man who, who pursues after Christ and wants God to be just magnified in his life. And so it's with great joy uh, that I look forward to seeing how God's going to use him in our church as a, as a means of blessing me, as a means of blessing us, that together we would grow uh, further on in our love for Christ. And so I'm sure many of you know Aaron, and so I encourage you to go up to him afterwards and just uh, share a word of encouragement with him after, uh, after the service today.
And so with that being said, let me just explain our text and, and, and what it looks like today. We're in 2 Timothy. Uh, the book of 2 Timothy is one of Paul's last letters that he wrote, and he wrote it to a pastor, to an elder at the church of Ephesus. And Paul's at the end of his life, and so he's charging Timothy to live out the calling that God has given him, to live out his role as an elder. And so because this text is a charge to an elder, it seems quite appropriate that today we would direct it towards an elder. Uh, now perhaps you might be wondering, okay, so if we're talking about elders and applying a text towards elders, that sounds great, but I'm not an elder. Is there a reason we need to be here this morning? Yes. Uh, I want to encourage you and just remind you that, that elders are, are just brothers within the family of God. They're fellow believers in the church. And elders are simply called to help lead the church through the teaching and through preaching, uh, but also by just living a life of godliness in which we are all meant to live. They're to be an example to us on how to live a Christ-centered, God-glorifying, spirit-dependent life. So as we look at the text today, yes, it's being directed towards an elder. And so the application is going to be focused that way, um, but it is applicable for every single one of us as we desire to live a God-centered life. And so the main point this morning is that elders proclaim the glory of God at all times because they long for the return of Christ. I just want you to think, we proclaim Christ because we long for the return of Christ. And so with that, I want to encourage you to stand. We stand each week at the reading of God's word. We do so because this is God's word. It's breathed out by God for the purpose of equipping us, of strengthening us, that we would live the life that he has called us to. And so it's 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, again, I just I thank you that we can gather here this morning. And God, we, we praise you. And as we look at your word, we realize that God, your word reveals you. It reveals your glory and the grace that you have given us in Jesus. Father, you have saved us and you have formed us into your bride, into your body, into what is called the church. Give us understanding today to see what it means to be a believer, a part of the church. Help us to understand the grace that you give us, that we would walk in an obedient way. Give us eyes to see the role of an elder and how you use them 
to proclaim your word and to guide and to instruct the church into godliness. God, I thank you for the elders we have today and for the elders that we will have in the future. God, give us eyes to see you this morning. May we be overwhelmed with awe by your grace that you save us and that you strengthen us so that we would one day be with you forever in the kingdom. God, increase our desire for your return. May we long for the day that you come. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So, so what I want to do is I want us to look at the beginning where we, Paul says, I have a charge for you. And then I want us to look at what an elder does and how an elder lives. It's kind of the, the two main parts. What does an elder do and how does an elder live? To begin, we'll, we'll look at the charge. So in verse 1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So the word charge, it means to exhort someone concerning something of grave or important matters. And, and so I, I'm pretty sure this no longer happens. But in the past, when someone would be sworn in as a witness into a court of law, they, they would come before the court, they would rise they would raise their right hand, they would place their left hand on the Bible, and they would say something like, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And the point of placing their hand on the Bible was to, was to testify to the highest authority that their testimony was true, that it was important. And so Paul is, is doing something similar here this morning. By saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, he's turning to Timothy and saying, Timothy, I have something of the absolute utmost importance. Do not miss this. God the Father, God the Son are the witnesses of this charge. They are hearing me give it to you, and they will be the ones to hold you to it. So we cannot ignore these words. So I threw out the message I will specifically tell Aaron certain things, but those are certainly also directed towards all of us. So Aaron, you cannot ignore the words of this charge, and as a church, we cannot ignore the words of this charge. God the Father and God the Son are there who have inspired the speaking of this charge, and they're the one holding the church to this charge. And so the charge is not only about authority, but there also seems to be an urgency that's communicated here. When, when Paul speaks of Jesus, he speaks of his appearing and of his judgment and of his kingdom. So I want to explain that just for a moment. So when we, we look to Scripture, Scripture tells us that there's a day coming in the future when Christ will return to earth. What we understand is that the first time Jesus came, he came in the flesh, that he would die on the cross, three days later, rise again, having conquered sin, conquered death, conquered Satan, where now he sits, what we read in the Apostles' Creed, at the right hand of God, waiting to the time where he will return again, and when he returns again, it will to bring forth his kingdom and the fullness of it, and to bring about a judgment, and we read throughout Scripture that Jesus is the one who will judge the world. In John 5, 22, we read, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
In a, in a parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, Jesus describes what will happen when he returns. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When Jesus returns, all of humanity will come before him. Those who have died and those who are alive will appear before him. And what we're told is that those who have rejected Christ, those who have not believed in them, those who have said, I do not need to be given, forgiven of my sins, I do not need Jesus, the Bible says that they will experience everlasting torment. And, and the Bible describes that as a place of darkness, a place of weeping, a place of gnashing of teeth. And it does so because they've, they've rejected and they've rebelled against the very authority of God. And then it says, but for those who have trusted in Christ, those who have longed for the day that he returns, those who have believed in Jesus as their Savior and as their King, they will experience everlasting life and joy in the presence of God in his perfect eternal kingdom. In fact, verse 8 in our text speaks of this. It says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but, all, but to all who have loved his appearing. To all who have loved his appearing, there's a reward, there's a crown of righteousness, there's, there's the entrance into the kingdom to be with God forever. And so what's Paul doing here? What's he reminding Timothy of? Why does he bring up the fact that the Father and the Son are these witnesses and that there's a day coming in the future of judgment and the kingdom coming in in its fullness? I think he's telling us that life on earth is not going to continue as it is forever. Keep the end in mind, Timothy. Time is limited. As elders, we cannot take today for granted. As a church, we cannot take today for granted. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not even promised tonight. We're not promised lunch. We have no guarantees of how long it'll be until Christ returns. Paul is reminding us that we are to live with the end in view. A day is coming when he will return, and that will be absolutely glorious for everyone who has who has believed in Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, if you love him and you long for his return, then as we sang earlier, 10,000 reasons, we will run out of, or we will exhaust those 10,000 reasons very quickly and we will come up with 10,000 more and 10,000 more and 10,000 more and we with unceasing praise will glorify him with joy, with hearts full of joy for all of eternity. It'll be glorious and yet, the Bible is clear that if you've rejected the word, and it will not be a day of joy, it will not be a day of glory. Rather, it will be the most horrific beginning of everlasting fiery torment. And so I encourage you, if you have not trusted in Christ, that you would know him and that you would believe in him today. If you have friends, if you have family, if you have people that you know have not trusted in Christ, I urge you to share the gospel with them, we do not know when Christ will return. And while it might be another 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, it could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. 
And so we live with that sense of urgency, knowing that there's one thing that is of most importance, that the God who created all things is worthy of all glory and all honor. He's the one who is redeemed. He's the one who is saved. He's the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so we could be forgiven of our sins. And there's no greater joy than knowing him. So I encourage you to know him and to love him. So Paul brings in this authority and this urgency. And I think it's important because it's easy to be distracted by the normal routines of life, isn't it? Like, it's easy to take for granted the sun rose and the sun will set. We get used to just doing the normal activities that we do each and every day. And if we're not careful, the normalcy of life will lull us to spiritual sleep. We lose a sense of urgency. And we become perhaps spiritually sluggish and lazy. And so Paul, with every ounce of energy he gives, he goes, wake up, Timothy. Wake up, church. There's an end. We have to live every moment with that in sight. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We know, we know with certainty what the future is. Christ will return. We'll be with him forever. But we don't know how long we'll be on earth as it is this moment. And so missions exist today for the proclamation of God's glory. But missions will expire on the day that Christ returns. Do you know that? Like when he returns, there's no more missions because God's glory will be made known in the fullness here on earth. Everyone that dwells on earth will know God and love him and enjoy him because everyone else who has rejected him will be judged forever. And so we must live with that end in mind. And so with that, Paul then, he turns to Timothy and he says, so this is what you do. And he gives five commands this is the life of an elder. This is what an elder is to do. And number one, he preaches the word. That's what we see in verse two. Preach the word, Timothy. Now, I'm, I'm, I think it's about 20 years ago, roughly, that, that the presentation of a product became very important to especially the American people. And I think Apple, the organization, the company, they led in that. And when you bought their product, they thought about how do we deliver it to them? How do we package it to them? So that when they open it, they open it in such a way they go, this is a quality product. And what that has done now is that you can go on Amazon and you can buy a belt, you can buy a coffee mug, you can buy a screen protector or, or whatever it is. And, and they have these engineers, it seems, that have designed the packaging of these things. And you open these boxes and you, everything is hand-wrapped and individually wrapped and, and, and placed with precision within a box. There's no way you and I can ever put it back, right? And sometimes there's even like a handwritten note. And you go, oh, wow, I'm so special. And it, and it makes you feel like, I, I, I bought this. I think I got a steal. Like this is such a quality product. And the thing might be a piece of junk. It might have only cost 50 cents to make, but the presentation of it, the way it's wrapped, the way it's made, you go, this is amazing. And you want to tell other people about it because it feels as though you have something of great value. Have you ever, have you bought something just normal? Like I think my son bought, bought a case for his phone in the last six months. And it's like, 
It was like space age, the way it was made and the way it came. And it was, it was awesome the way it was all put together. And you thought that it was some valuable piece of merchandise and it you know, cost 10 bucks. That's not what preaching is. We, we don't dress up God's word. We're not trying to put a pretty bow on it so it looks good, so it appears to be valuable, so it hopefully gathers a large hearing and interest base. We don't try to add or take away or soften anything within Scripture. We don't try to say, how do we say this so the most amount of people won't be offended and everyone just feels good about themselves? But rather, what we want to do is give the word as it's given, as God has preached it, as God has shared it with us. And so there's just two things I want to say about God's word this morning. Number one, it's absolutely sufficient. God's word is sufficient. We do not need originality in the pulpit. If someone stands before you, either on a pulpit or comes before you, just in normal conversation, and says, I saw something in the Bible I don't think anyone has seen in 2,000 years. Yeah, it's probably not there. There's a reason nobody else has seen it, most likely. We don't need originality. We don't need to try to dress up God's word so it looks better. Uh, flip back just a few verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It's literally, it's the words just before this passage. Paul says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Notice God's word is breathed out. The Bible's written by man but inspired by God. When we hear God's word preached, when you read God's word, when someone shares the truths of God's word, you're hearing the voice of God. Do you know that? Like, praise God. People say today, I just wish God would speak to me. I wish I would hear his voice. You have a lot of words right here. This is God's word. This is his voice. If you want a clear understanding of God's will for your life, it's right here, 66 books. God's will for your life. And verse 17 says, it's absolutely sufficient to equip you for everything God's going God's going to call you to do. So does it answer every question you might have? No. But will it prepare you to do everything you need to do here on this earth to live a God-centered, spirit-empowered life? Yes. Like it's ev everything you need right here. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the chairs. Take them with you. We have more. Everything you need to live a godly life is right here. If you're going to be a godly wife, a godly husband, a godly father, a godly mother, a godly child, a godly worker, a godly neighbor, whatever you are, everything you need is in God's word. It's sufficient for you. Therefore, we preach the word. Elders, preach the word. Aaron, preach this word. Timothy, preach this word. It's his chosen means in which we're saved, and it's his chosen means in which we grow in our faith. Number two, God's word is about God. We need to know that. When we read, about God, when we read God's word, we can read things about, about creation, about redemption, about the sinfulness of humanity, the history of Israel, the, the, the sacrifice of animals. We can read about heaven and hell and so many things. 
but the ultimate message of the Bible is God. God has given us his word so we would know him, that we would love him, that we would treasure him, that we would believe in him. So Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Proclaim the glory of God. Help people to know God, Timothy. We, we do not preach the Bible so people go to heaven. We do not preach the Bible so we have our own houses in heaven. We do not preach the Bible so that we get to heaven and we live however we want. Heaven is, is not the gospel. Eternal life is not the gospel. Seeing family members who have died before us is not the gospel. God's the gospel. Like We need to know that God is the gospel. Eternal life with God, that's good news. And so John Piper, in a book written or titled God is the Gospel, he writes this. I think the quote is up here. It says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends that you ever had on earth and all the foods you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? I think about that. That's often how heaven is pictured. That's often how heaven is described. A Christless gospel is not the gospel of the Bible, and it will save no one. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He said, we have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. So we can talk a lot of things about the Bible. We can talk a lot about a lot of things that are in the Bible. But if we don't talk about God and who he is and what he has done for us, we miss the whole point of everything. So one of the most important things that we're called to do then is to treasure the word of God because it leads us to God that we would know him. And so Paul tells Timothy, this is what you do. The end is coming, so preach the word. Help people to know God, Timothy. This is the role of every single believer. If you're a father, if you're a mother, help your family to know God. Use the word of God. If you're a Christian, encourage others with the word of God. There's no greater joy than knowing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. So as he's, as he's saying, preach the word, He's focusing everything of an elder through God's word. Know God. Help people to know God. And the four other commands all come into play about how we handle the very word of God. So as we look at the next one, it says, elders be ready at all times. Scripture says that when God saved you, he made you into a new creation. So if you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, you're born again. You become a child of God. To be a Christian is not a nine-to-five job. It's not a hobby. A Christian is one who has been saved by God, joined by the Spirit of God, joined to God by the Spirit of God who dwells in you. This means that no matter what situation you're in, what has happened in your life, you are a Christian. And so Paul is calling Timothy, set an example before the church. 
always be ready to proclaim the word. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The elder is to remind the church that there is never a day when the gospel is not needed. We shepherd at all times because the gospel is needed at all times. Just as your body requires, requires daily food, so our spiritual souls require God's word every day. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by God, every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're to be ready. Every single believer here, we are a Christian at every moment of the day. So at every moment, we are to respond in this world to the situations around us as a Christian in godliness. Next, Paul will say, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So I'm just going to take all three of those commands and, and put them together. And here's the point that I think what Paul is saying. Elders move people towards the gospel of Jesus. So let me, let me just define some, some definitions or give some definitions first. The word reprove can be translated correct. It means, it means showing people where they're wrong. It's always what we love, Right? The word rebuke is to admonish or warn someone forcefully. When, when describing an elder in the book of Titus, Paul writes to Titus and he says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word exhort means to support or encourage, but not just encourage, but to encourage in a certain direction. It's, it's desiring an action to come about or the continuation of an action. Now, perhaps you've heard the phrase, God loves you just the way you are. Have you heard that? We all know that. I mean, that's partially true. But you know what the problem is with partial truths? They're kind of wrong, too. Like, remember when God, when God saves you, he makes you into a new creation. So to say God loves you the way you are, is he saves you where you are by grace and then transforms you into something new. And then after that, he says in his word, he will continue to make you more like his son, Jesus, until the day he returns. And so your, your life is a continual changing or, or molding, growing and transformation. So I don't think it's very accurate to say God loves you just the way you are. He's changing you all the time into the image of his son Christ. In fact, let me just give a few texts that show this. Romans 8, 29. Paul says, we've been saved so we would be conformed into the image of his son. We read something similar in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul writes... Every believer is being renewed and the knowledge after the image of its creator. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul's talking to the church and, and how we all function with one another. And he says that, the, that Jesus gave the church elders to equip the church so it grows and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the church is to grow in maturity as we continue on in our spiritual lives. God did not save you so you stay the same. He saved you so every day you'd become more and more like Christ. That's one of the reasons, like when we get saved, he doesn't just bring us right into heaven right then. Every day he's growing us in our understanding of him, 
growing us in our knowledge of him, our love for him, our desire for him, our affection for him, our, our, our ability in, in knowing of what it means to live for him. And so how do we become more like Christ? How is it that we grow in godliness? Well, one of God's chosen means is the instruction and the shepherding of elders. So the implication of this would be on the elder, elders are to be involved in the life of the members of the church, which means as the church grows, we need more elders to help shepherd properly. We help one another to identify sins, those things that are inconsistent with faith in Christ. And, and we have things like this all over our all over the world, all over our lives right now in the world that we live in, people that help us walk or, or live a certain way. Uh, one example, we, we have lifeguards that carefully watch over those in a pool to make sure they don't do something wrong or, or spend too much time under the water, right? We have positions and jobs all over the world to help us live in a certain way and to correct things if we, if we speed or, or go too slow because that's sometimes the problem, right? I don't think that's usually the problem. Sometimes we speed. And so, so elders are, are called to carefully watch over the church to, to make sure no one falls into sin. And in fact, that's one of the reasons we practice church membership. It's a way that we say we're committing to one another. We're committing that we would build each other up. And it's a way that we, we affirm our desire to be shepherded by the elders of the church. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that it's always easy to be corrected and rebuked, does it? Like, I don't think anyone woke up today and said, man, I hope my elder calls me today and offers me some correction on how I can live a more godly life. I would sure love that. I don't know that we do that. If that happens, praise God. Um, I don't think we always like people to point out our sins. But I do want to encourage us, we should not be anxious when anyone in the church offers correction or rebuke or an encouragement to how we're living because they're moving us to be more like Christ. They're helping us to live for the one who has made us and has saved us. And they're simply just helping identify things that are, are distracting us and leading us away from the glory of God or, or distracting others from the glory of God. And they're helping us to maximize our joy in Christ. So when we're being corrected or rebuked or exhorted or any of those things, the purpose is joy in Christ. The purpose is, is that we would know and love God all the more and be all the more satisfied in him and with him. So as Christians, we ought to welcome and desire the correction of other believers because we know that it's a form of grace in our life. Pride and arrogance will cause us to be defensive and reject correction. Now, now with that, nowhere in God's word does it say you can, you can use any means necessary to offer correction and, and rebuking one another. In fact, if we look at the last words in verse 2, it says, we do these things with complete patience and teaching. Elders are to be gentle. Elders are not to be harsh. We're to be kind. So, so as Paul encouraged Timothy, so, so we need to encourage the elders here and everyone as a church, be patient with one another. And let me just give a few reasons, three reasons, 
why we need to be patient with one another. Number one, God is the one who changes people. Like we, we don't change people. Do you know that? Like if you're a parent, you really know that, right? Like, but but, but if, you're, if you're just a person, you can try to change people. You can try to force people to change. But we don't change people. We don't have that power to. God is the one who changes people. God is the one who saves people. God is the one who grows them in their salvation. He uses us as a means of doing things, but we are not the instrument of change. Number two, change takes place over time. We're not just radically transformed in the image of Christ right away. It takes time. In fact, some of you probably had Play-Doh as a kid. Anyone have Play-Doh? Play-Doh's a horrible invention. <laughs> Goes into carpet. Can't ever get it out. Kids eat it. It's terrible. But it's fun. And so there's, there's a thing called like the Play-Doh factory. I had to look this up again because I forgot what it was called. But it's the Play-Doh factory. And if you remember, there's like this squeeze toy where you put this glob of Play-Doh in and you, you squeeze it and it comes out in whatever shape. You can put these shapes, shapes like a, a star or a circle and it just presses it through. And all the excess Play-Doh just gets squeezed out the side. It's immediate transformation. I want a star, squeeze it, and it's painful, and everything that you don't want just gets squeezed out of the way, and out comes the star. That's not how God works in our life. Praise God. Now, there are times that he does do things quite quickly in us, but change is often degree by degree by degree by degree. As he highlights sins in our life, things that are inconsistent with living a godly life, as he grows us in our understanding of him, that we would slowly be molded into the image of Christ. Number three, we're patient because we reflect the character of Christ. Have you ever noticed that sometimes parents will yell at their kids to stop yelling? Like we so do it. The way we parent at times is, is I mean, we all do it. It's funny Kinda. In 20 years, it's funny when we look back. It's not funny at the moment. Some of you grandparents are here, like, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's. and us who are in it, we're like, oh, it's never funny. Um, as Christians, we must not use ungodly means to move people towards godliness. If God is patient towards us, we are to be patient towards others. We cannot be ungodly to produce godliness. We're going to help others to live like Christ. We must live like Christ ourselves. So as Christians, we, we do not encourage or correct one another empty-handed. We come with God's word. That's when we're patient with teaching. He's emphasizing again the word of God right there. With complete patience in teaching, we come alongside one another. You are... Our goal is not to be to correct people so they look and live like us. Our goal is that we move people to look and live like Christ. And so when Paul says we exhort, we rebuke, and we, we encourage one another, we do so for the purpose of moving people into Christ-likeness. Therefore, we do it with the authority of God's word. It's not your authority. It's not your image that we're trying to become more like. It's the image of Christ. And so parents, I want to encourage especially you as you regularly give correction to your children. Use God's word. Help them to know that the correction you are doing is not just the authority of dad, the authority of mom, and just how you think life should best be lived, but everything you're doing is towards godliness, 
towards Christ-likeness. Therefore, it's rooted in God's word. And if we're going to do that, that means we need to be in the word of God on a regular basis ourselves. It's hard to lead people towards Christ if we are not living like Christ by his word. So know his word that would be rooted in his word. So as we encourage others, we're doing so through the instruction of God's word. Elders, through the word of God, are called to water the church's roots of faith that they would dig further down into the bedrock of the gospel. That's what we're called to do with the word each and every day. Now perhaps, perhaps all this sounds a little bit strange to you this morning. Maybe you're new into church or, or you haven't heard a sermon on, on eldership. And you, maybe you're going, this sounds slightly intrusive. You literally have people who are watching over how I live and how I parent and how I do marriage and the words that I speak, and then they're going to call me out on it? Do I really want this? Do I want to be a part of a body of believers that, that are watching how I live? Is this a good idea? The answer is yes. Look at, look at verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. Notice what Paul says. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit, them, suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into, the myth, into myths. Who's Paul talking to? A pastor of a church. He's not saying, man, the people that gather at the Tacoma Dome, Tacoma Dome later today, man, they're going to just wander off from the truth. He's talking about people in the church are going to be deviating from the truth. He's saying as we move closer to the return of Christ in the church, there will be those who do not want sound doctrine. They're going to want their ears to be itched. They want a teaching that will affirm whatever passions they want. They want preaching that says, you be you. They want preaching. They don't want shepherds who love the sheep and keep them in line with the gospel Rather, they want elders who affirm how they want to live because that's how the world defines love. Affirm me and my passions and my desires and don't judge me. Some of the largest churches in America today are those that affirm the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel has nothing to do with God's glory and everything to do with man's glory. It says you should have your best life now, and it makes a killing on making books like that. It says God saved you, so he will make much of you. It's a man-centered gospel, and man-centered gospels will never, ever save you. So how do we overcome this? How do we make sure we, we never drift towards this type of teaching? We're, we're to be in the church. Or to be a member with committed members who are, are helping us and growing us and spurring us on in godliness. We're to have elders that preach the gospel and strive to help every member grow in the faith. God uses his people, every person here, as a means of encouraging his people towards godliness. Fathers and husbands are to be examples of godliness in their homes. And here in the church, elders are to help be an example to call the church to living a life of godliness. And so, Aaron, you've been called in as an elder to help lead the church of Timberline into godliness. Every elder is called to do that in the church that they lead in. 
We're called to be gentle. We're called to be patient as we use God's word so that we would show the magnificence and the beauty and the glory of Christ and the futility of trusting anything but Christ. And so this is, this is a charge that Paul gives Timothy. Preach the word all the time. Lead people towards Christ. Do it with complete patience and teaching. Don't let them drift, Timothy. Now, that's what an elder does. And it's not always easy. It, it, it can be hard. Um, there's a host of temptations that elders face. Our words are often not welcomed. We wonder if we make a difference. After preaching, we, we often can struggle with, with feelings of inadequacy or failure. Now, none of those temptations or sins are, are limited to, to eldership. You very well might be here today, and you might be, be wrestling with feelings of inadequacy. You might be feeling worn out as a believer. Perhaps you're wondering, as a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, have I failed? Can I keep going? Am I making any difference? How do we continue? What, what are we called to do each day? And so, so in verse 5, Paul gives just four commands. And I think these four commands describe, like, on the ground, what an elder does every day. If, if verse 2 says, this is what an elder does, like, like the big picture, this is what you're going to do, this is the job description, then verse 5 is, is how do you do it each and every single day? And so I just, I just want to read through that. He gives four commands. And so he says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Be sober-minded. Keep your eyes on the gospel. Remember, you've been saved by grace. Endure suffering. Life is hard. Pain and hardship is not the absence of God in your life. Do the work of an evangelist. Be ready to share the gospel at all times. Fulfill your ministry. Be faithful. Do the job you've been given. Alistair Begg, a, a pastor who was, who was talking with other pastors, he quotes this verse one time when he's, when he's talking with them, and he says, I increasingly find this verse to be the anchor of every day of my life. He says, I wake up on Monday, and I say, well, what will I do today? And I say, well, I think I'll try to keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all my duties of the ministry. He says, when, when I'm lifted up by a little encouragement, he says, I say to myself, well, what should I do? The answer is keep your head, endure hardship, and so on. He paused, and then he, and then he says, and when the waves beat on me, and I feel like running away to the hills somewhere, what do I do on that day? He says, well, Alistair, just keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And I think he's on to something there. You see, these aren't just simply commands, but they're reminding us of what God has called us to do and what God's grace is doing in our life. And I think in verse 7, Paul, I think, summarizes the effect of saying these things every day, where Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. How do you get to that point at the end of your life where you'll say, I ran the race? I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I, I did what he called me to do. I think it's waking up every day and say, well, today I need to be sober-minded. I need to endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, 
fulfill your ministry. And this isn't just, I'm going to suck it up and do things. This is remembering the grace that saved you is the grace that's working through you that you would live a godly life. And these, this is a description of what that godly life looks like every day. Be sober-minded. Remember the gospel. Let that be the controlling influence in your mind. Don't be distracted by all the things that are taking place, all the anxieties that seem to swarm around us. Know the gospel. God is in control. He's returning again. Live in light of his return. The charge of an elder is to simply set the glory of God before the church at all times and to say, Christ is returning. Live for that. There is no greater truth. And so church, if we're going to do that, we stay sober-minded, we endure suffering, we endure hardship, we fulfill the ministry that God has given us, and we do the work of an evangelist. Elders are simply a means in which God cares for his church and reminds them of the gospel and his return. And so ultimately, as we consider elders, we're considering just another way that God cares for his church and gives grace. God's word is grace to his church that shows how much he loves you. His spirit that dwells in you, it testifies of his love for you. Other believers in this room that encourage you and spur you on, simply a means of testifying of his love for you. Elders are simply just in their means of testifying of his love for his church that we would all long for and look for the day of his return. Let me pray. Father, Father, we... We long for the day that you return. And we thank you for the word that you have given us that would remind us that there's a point to life. We have been created for the purpose of worshiping you, of knowing you, of loving you, of enjoying you, of treasuring you, of being satisfied in you and with you for all of eternity. And God, I pray that every single believer here, that we would work together as your body, spurring one another on towards this. I pray for the elders that we have and the elders that we will have, that you would continue to raise up elders, that they would lead us and encourage us to live for the glory of God and that we would not be distracted by the things of this world and that the normal activities of life would not lull us into some spiritual sluggish apathy. But every day we would wake up being reminded of truth. There is a God and he has loved us through the sending of his son. And because of that, we can spend eternity with him. And there's nothing greater than that. May we live every day and every moment in light of the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to share that truth. And Lord, I pray that we would be a humble church that when, whether it's an elder or anyone who offers any form of correction or rebuke, Lord, I pray that arrogance and pride would not be where we turn, but we grounded in the humility of your gospel, Lord, that we would receive that, that we would live a life of repentance and faithfulness and godliness to you. God, spur us on in the faith. God, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, as we go forth from today, may we remember that you have saved us so we would do the work of the ministry that you have called us. So help us to be sober-minded. Help us to endure suffering, to 
do the work of an evangelist and fulfill the ministry you have called us to. In your name, Jesus, amen.